Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing how to create a culture of innovation, agility and adaptability, a future fit culture. I'm delighted to welcome Jeff Marlowe, a specialist in the area of future fit culture. <laughs> Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Susie. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Jeff, I've called you a specialist. We can go into that later, but <laughs> you've you spent the last 30 years helping organizations throughout Europe, Asia, and US to move from what I call reflection to action and to create cultures of innovation and become proactively agile, i.e., do something that actually creates sustainable change. And I think as we move into the post-COVID era, we need this more than ever, but a lot of them are already doing agile or should I say that's that's what they're saying but it isn't moving very much so you know we were chatting before the show and you were telling me quite a few anecdotes around particularly one that sticks in my mind is somebody who actually asked you can you come and help my people behave more like your people so I think that's a great place to start um so what did they mean by that Jeff and what was it around their behavior that they liked in your people Brilliant question. And yeah, I mean, it really transformed my career because my background is I did electronics engineering at university and I was taken by the whole control systems, control theory area. So, you Mm. know, how do you control mechanisms and how do you control physical objects in the real world? And in fact, partly that was because I did my degree whilst I was also working at British Aerospace. And so uh, I did do some commercial work there, but I was also involved in designing the British aerospace equivalent to the Exocet missile, (laughs) famous for um, sinking British ships during the Argentinian conflict around (laughs) the Falklands, which was actually during the time I was working there. I, I moved on from there to the BBC because I was much more interested in digital electronics than analog electronics. And although the BBC was very analog, they were seeing the arrival of digital in the future and they were about to digitize all their studios and all of their transmission chains and and all of that. So I thought, wow, you know, if the corporation is about to invest massively in all that tech, what a great opportunity to get in on the ground. So I I, I, um, handed in my resignation at British Aerospace, moved to the BBC and during the process of, uh, you know, the three months or whatever the notice period was, by the time I arrived at the BBC, they'd have deferred this investment in digital for at least two years. Brilliant. <laughs> I turn up this, this sort of digital-shaped guy in this analogue-shaped organisation. And so, I, you know, I kind of rattled around for a bit and didn't really fit. I only stayed there for about nine months. It was actually my sister who was at the time a um, physics teacher in a, in a school who saw an advert on the back of the, what was the magazine called? New Scientist. And they were looking for digital electronics and software engineers for a firm called Cambridge Consultants. And I mean, I'd never heard of them before, but it turns out they're one of, I mean, it's Europe-based then, Mm. more global now, but it's one of the open innovation labs that firms hire when they want new technology. And so there were people there doing digital electronics, which is what I joined to do, but there was also analog people, radio people, people who did biotech, people who did mechanical engineering, industrial designs, all that kind of stuff Mm. on a contract basis for clients. And so from the outside, it looked like, well, you know, you hire these folks when you want some technology to go into a new product or a new manufacturing Mm. process. But one of the things that became quite apparent during working there was that usually the biggest problem was 
typical scenario would be a client would come knocking on our door and say, uh, help, uh, we didn't see this competitor coming along and they've just launched a new product. It's eating our market share. We need a new product to compete with it, but our product launch cycle is two years and we need something in nine months. Help. And so one of the things that we were very good at, as well as providing the relevant technology where clients lacked it, we were very good at cutting through the red tape inside their organizations. So mm. join up marketing, R&D, manufacturing, production, service and, um, you know, field service, that kind of thing. We were quite, we were very good at, if you like, streamlining the relationships inside their organizations. And so the comment that you introduced with was a client basically recognizing, and they're a client we've done a lot of projects for uh, in the pulp and paper industry in, in Sweden. And uh, they just recognized that when our engineers or our technical people went into their organization to work with them on a product, on a project mm-hmm. or a product, they were, our, our folks were very good at building relationships with marketing, with sourcing, with R&D, with manufacturing, et cetera, mm-hmm. and even with management. You know, wow. <laughs> um, and so that was why he said, you know, well, we, we like working with your people more than our people. You couldn't come and help make our people behave more like your people, could you? I love that. It's such a and brilliant I, I was, sentence. Yeah, I mean, I was at this point in my career where I'd realised, you know, the technology, that was kind of okay. And, you know, I, as a kid, I'd tinkered around with cars. And mm. how do you, I, I was always fascinated by how do things work and how can you make them work better? But at this point in my career, which was my early sort of mid-20s, it struck me that actually a lot of it is about how do you get people to work better together? Mm. Not so mm. much how to get the inanimate bits of silicon and, and software. and yeah, That's the easy bit. <laughs> it was the easy bit, yeah. I mean, so, um, so, yeah, that was, that was the ask. And, of course, because the client knew us and had worked with us many times before, there were not many questions about what's your methodology and, you know, mm. what are you instead of McKinsey, which is the usual comment you get, you know, clients looking at your services. <laughs> Why would we hire you rather than McKinsey? Great question, though. <laughs> but it, well, it's a good question, yeah. I mean, it's one I've got a good answer for if we get around to it. Yeah, the, the, the thing was that uh, they were quite open to just experimenting and mm. sort of tried to bring in some of the things that I thought made Cambridge consultants more innovative than mm. what BBC engineering and what I'd seen in British aerospace engineering. Mm. And so, uh, you know, some of the stuff that cut through some of the hierarchy got got away from a little bit of the self-importance that certain people have because they see themselves as experts or as the boss or controlling resources, these kind of things. Uh, And some of it worked and some of it didn't work. And you gradually learn after different clients that you work with, you kind of pick up a so, so it's part art, part science, but it's this balance of understanding what might work here and trying mm. to help the people experiment with something so they can discover what works for them. Mm. Out of that emerges this culture of innovation, agility, adaptiveness, which is kind of what more and more organizations are recognizing they need in a world that's got so uncertain and unpredictable. And I mean, COVID was just a massive, great dollop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody had landed in mm. there two years ago Mm. I mean it is science but it's human science isn't it and so I'm hearing that for you a digital profile is essentially also about understanding human science and and the way people behave but of course that's not often included in digital profiles is it yeah and also it's not you know we engineers are not renowned for it (laughs) either (laughs) we're renowned for not having it and yeah I mean 
so I mean, you kind of brought it back to science. I mean, somebody I've been very, very fascinated with, I, I, I read his first major book 10 years ago, this is Ian McGilchrist. So he wrote this book, The Master and His Emissary, about, mm. so he's a neuroscientist mm. and a psychiatrist and, you know, has worked at Johns Hopkins in the States and at, um, in the Maudsley at London. So what he says in, in his latest book, which came out last year, The Matter with Things, is that really there are four routes to knowing. Mm. There are two that we really emphasise in quite powerful and also narrow ways, which are science and reason. But the other two that we tend to leave out are intuition and imagination. Mm. And when you're dealing with innovation, you've got to somehow bring all of that together because, sure, you need the science. Sure, you need to be reasonable. And, of course, one of the things he highlights is the word reason, which we've tended to think of as being rational, and then we've turned rational into rationalization. <laughs> Actually, originally in Greek, comes from ratio, which is like the idea is what is the ratio of ways in which you are deploying your psyche, your consciousness, and how much of it is in these mm. four buckets? How much of it is in science? How much of it is in reason? How much of it is in, much of it is in intuition? How much of it is in, in imagination? Because mm. without intuition and imagination, you get no innovation. You just end up refining what you've always done before. And if you always do what you've done before, you always get what you've always got. And that's what we do, isn't it? We just try and do more of it with less. I mean, it, it's very interesting the what you just said about the you know the etymology of that word and where it comes from. We're so far from that, and we've polarized it into if I'm making it binary into left brain type of rationalization structure. But even digital for me is still about even innovation is still about let's put a process on it and let's see how we can do it more effectively and more quickly, yeah. and. You know, if I come back to your first anecdote around, can you make my people behave a little bit like, more like your people? It's clearly not about rationalisation, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, certainly it's not all about that, definitely. Mm. And as you say, we do overemphasise that. And it's it's kind of that thing about when you're proud of your hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> you you try, try and do that with everything. So so it is this more, this, this broader approach with more understanding in in terms of insight and mm. imagination, which which I mean, a great scientist understood this. I mean, you know, read any stuff about Einstein. I mean, go to yeah. the go to Wicked quote to find your Einstein quotes because there's so many quotes that are attributed to him that he never said. But he <laughs> talked about how you know imagination and intuition mm. were his most important tools mm. for novel discovery. And certainly, if you look at the big breakthrough products that have happened. And affected us in our lives so you know the, the computers being available and usable by normal people mm. because they had windows on them um alan Kay, who was the guy at uh, xerox uh, their palo alto research center who came up with the idea of a graphical user interface to computers getting away from punched cards and you know <laughs> needing a phd in, in computer science to be able to program one uh, his idea was how could you make a computer accessible for children how could children mm computer uh, and he said well what if you thought of a computer as something like a super paper and everything you can do with paper you can copy it you can screw it mm. up and throw it in the recycling bin uh, all those in those days we weren't so green so it's called the trash <laughs> just a trash can <laughs> you can fetch it out you know yeah. you can copy it you can file it so all the things that we take for granted as the user interface now came out of alan k at xerox and because Xerox was sort of locked into, we're a photocopier company who make our money out of selling toner, they, they, they couldn't actually see. I mean, they, they, 
they they literally they invented the office of the future. And in fact, as Alan Kay says, that the only thing he remembers about their their um, strategy for the Palo Alto Research Centre was if anybody is going to remove paper from the office, it better be Xerox. <laughs> because, because otherwise we've got nothing. And so the mm. technology couldn't commercialise it. And of course, Steve Jobs managed to parlay a, um, a small investment that Xerox had in Apple to mm. go and have a look around their research centre, saw what Alan Kay was doing. And that became the Lisa, which was the forerunner of the Macintosh. And then, as Steve Jobs told the story, then, you know, Microsoft just simply copied what they were doing and, and made windows. So, so you see this, you know, this ability to see beyond the current way of doing things, to think of a computer as a super paper as opposed to like a, it used to be thought of as like a railway system where the computer was the tracks and your program was the, mm. was the rolling stock that you put on the tracks. And that, that was the mental model. And Alan Kay was able to see beyond that, largely because as a kid, mm. he'd read 200 books by the time he went to school age four. Wow. Wow. So always when the teacher said, this is the way things are, he would pipe up at the back of the class and go, yeah, but that's just one way of looking at it. Poor teachers. <laughs> really irritated all the teachers, of course. <laughs> but, but that idea that, you know, whatever somebody says is the way you do things, to have that question, is that the only way to do it? You know, surely there are other ways. Mm. To do it. And to question the orthodoxy. In fact, on my on my phone, my um, screensaver, my, my wallpaper is... Helen Keller, who said the heresy of one age becomes the orthodoxy of the next. <laughs> so, th- so this is really what mm. this whole thing of innovation and, and, and future fitness now uh, is all about. That's a hard, it, well, it's a big ask. It's also a hard ask, isn't it, to ask people to constantly question their assumptions, to constantly take that distance to look at, you know, can I look at it differently? Is there a different way of looking at it? Because I think we all know that there is, there inevitably is a different yeah. way of looking at it. So. You know, how do you put that into something that's tangible enough for organizations and leaders to be able to one, comprehend and two, master? Because yeah. I know your methodology is based on, on this concept. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you take that to, I feel like calling us normal people <laughs> in terms of, you know, making it, making it something that's like tangible that we can touch and go, oh, yeah, I get what you mean. And now I've got to do that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's two angles, two two ways to come at this, and they're both required. One is bottom up, and one is top down. Mm. Uh, so the bottom up way is this idea that it doesn't matter how smart or how well informed or how experienced we are, we never see the whole of any situation. Mm. And the metaphor I tend to use is it's like we we always have at the best what we have is a two dimensional perspective Mm. on a three-dimensional reality that none of us can ever see in its entirety. And so what kills this kind of stuff in organizations is when somebody influential, and that doesn't always mean somebody in the most senior position with the the corner office and the big hat, because, you know, it's about the social dynamics of the organization, not necessarily the formal hierarchy. Mm. Somebody in a powerful position who's an expert or a decision maker or a resource controller says, actually, no, you know, my perspective is the one we have to follow and shuts down the possibilities of anybody else's perspective being considered. Mm. I think the psychology of this is that when we're stuck at that kind of level of seeing the way we see things as 
the right way to see things. And it's an easy trap to fall into. And we have to actually, on an individual level, kind of be a little bit diligent about not falling into that trap too often. When we fall into that trap, what it does is it shuts down other perspectives. And so if people can just get this core notion that we never see the whole picture and what that therefore means is if you're engaging and interacting with somebody else, exploring the same topic or the same area, mm. there's probably things that they're seeing that you're not. Yeah. And, and to have the mentality, well, that, well, just because they're seeing something that isn't what I see doesn't mean that it's a battle of who's right and who's wrong. That, that's the trap. The trap mm. is we fall into this, well, we can't both be right. And I know I am, so you must be wrong. Yes. <laughs> I like the word battle because it is about the power dynamics, isn't it, particularly in organisations, mainly informal, but there's clearly a formal part to it of yeah. who knows the most, so who has more power over who. And, of course, if you're thinking maybe the other person may have a perspective and that might be right, then it's busting that myth, isn't it, of the people higher up are more powerful, have more decision-making, know better, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and you use an important word there, Susie, which is myth. You know, we kind of, and I, I don't know where it really stems from. I have a theory that it's to do with originally in sort of powerful organisations going back hundreds of years. There was this notion, I think, that if you were a king or if you were an emperor or if you were, you know, a, a significantly important person within a community or a society, you were there because of the grace of God. Mm. No, and, and even in the coinage in the UK, we still have, you know, fidei defensor, yes. um, dei gratia, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> of the faith by the grace of God, you know, mm. so the queen is appointed and has this consciousness. I mean, she genuinely has this consciousness that she has been put there as the regent by God. And therefore, if you're in that position, it's very tempting then to assume that you're all knowing and all seeing and all wisdom is somehow channeled through you. Mm. And so if you said that to a senior person in an organization, they would of course deny it because it because it's ridiculously, you know, ego maniacal to believe so. But still there's a kind of sense of pressure inside organizations that kind of makes people in positions of power and influence feel they ought to know all the answers. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a there's a psychology of kind of feeling uncomfortable, bit of imposter syndrome, but at the same time trying to project this aura of all-knowing, all omniscient, mm -hmm. sort of omnipotent conf confidence because people think that's what they're supposed to be. And nobody yeah, ever yeah. is, but until they realise they can never be like that, it can be a game that people are very easily drawn into playing. And then it does push away anybody else who's got ideas mm -hmm. to contribute. But it's linked to ego, though, isn't it? I mean, I always remember being told to grow an ego mm -hmm. in my career, and I decided I wouldn't do that because everyone has one. It's yeah. just, you know, it's really about how you manage it. But this for me is really what's coming up in, we can, you can put whatever, whatever label you want on it, agile or innovation or design thinking, or it's essentially competitive advantage, but we're moving into a more interconnected world. For me, we're talking about eco-leadership mm. um, or my definition of eco-leadership, which is leading across communities and opening a space where what I call real co-creation. So yeah, everybody has different perspectives and nobody's right or wrong, but it's about where do you find the middle ground and what do you take out of that in terms of the best ideas. But to come back to your discussion around, it's not always the people who are highest in the hierarchy who have the most influence. Mm. Can you just take us through the whole idea of powerful communities and key influences? Because I think it's so important as we move out of pyramids and into networks 
or yeah. at least in organizational design, because, you know, the, the behavioral shift that goes with that is the one that's the hardest, I think, and maybe the least tangible today for people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know one of the people that you had on your podcast previously is Joan Lurie, and Joan yeah. talks very knowledgeably and with a lot of experience around this issue of roles within mm. systems. Mm. Uh, and it's something that I feel has got a lot of power and a lot of mileage in it, or should I say it's probably kilometerage, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, should pretend that we're still a little bit euro aware even though brexit has come and gone it's a different um, perspective jeff it's a different perspective, a different perspective. <laughs> yeah and, and so this the thing about ego that you mentioned earlier you know the, the trouble is with english is we don't have very many words that describe subtle aspects of consciousness i mm. for my sins and um for reasons that we could go into if we have time about 30 years ago, I got very interested in Eastern philosophy and meditation. And what you discover when you start to poke around in um, Sanskrit, Hindi, Urdu, some of the Indian languages, is there are a lot more precise words for consciousness and aspects of consciousness. A bit like people say, you know, the Eskimos have 15 different words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the Bushmen of the Kalahari don't have any because they've never seen yeah. any. Yeah. A bit like that because we haven't really, you know, ever since the scientific revolution of the 16th, 17th century, we've focused so much on the external world and we've not really in, developed a very clear insights into the inner world. And so the reason I raise that is because the, the idea of ego, I mean, in Greek, um, ego, ego just simply means I am. So there's a sense of self. So to Joan's stuff about role mm. within system, you know, it's like, what is my sense of self mm. that I have within the systems that I'm part of? And so we play different roles. You know, you might play the role of a housewife or a mm. mother or, a you know, a software engineer or a team leader or a coach. Yeah. They're all different roles that, you, that you're able to inhabit. And so... This can create quite a lot of confusion about, you know, well, well who, who am I? You know, who's the me in the middle of all of that? And, and so the other thing I wanted to raise on this issue of ego is one of the words that is there in Sanskrit for ego is ahankar. And if you break that down etymologically, aham means self, the, the, the feeling of I am, and kar means created. So oh. it's like a, a created sense of self. So if somebody is a senior executive and they go, well, I'm the decision maker, what they've done is they've created a self that is invested in this identity of being the decision maker. So mm. they feel the need to make all the decisions. It's not like they're sitting there going, but I have to make all the decisions consciously. It's just yeah. the awareness that they adopt. Or if somebody's an expert or if somebody's a controller of resources, that may well be the, the awareness that they, uh, that they adopt. And so when people do this, they constrain the ability of a community to flourish, for people to share ideas, particularly to share half-baked ideas, which I think mm. is really what kind of to a degree what Amy Edmondson is poking around at with this whole concept of psychological safety. safety. Like, mm. Can you speak up a half-baked idea and not feel you're going to be shot down in flames and ridiculed? Because probably mm. it's cool if you did that. You know, my, my wife sometimes tells the story of when she was studying at school and um, one of the teachers asked her to read out a piece from some Greek thing. I mean, it's in English, but but from mm. a Greek play. And one of the characters was Titus, and of course, she mispronounced it as Titus, which of course had all the rest of the class laughing. laughing. So, so what she learned was don't speak up in class. You know, I did the same thing. You know, because I was asked why did Henry VIII have six wives, and I said, well, because he didn't have any hair, because I didn't know that you pronounced air h e i r. 
Oh, brilliant. Soft age. <laughs> and of course, everybody laughed at me about that. So you learn this lesson. Don't, yeah. don't try something half-baked because you're going to get shot down in flames. Mm. So, so what, you, what you kind of want to be doing then in, in, in terms of the, the context of key influences, key influencers, is understanding. So who are the people within a context that others reference their behavior to? Mm. So if you think of culture as experienced by individuals as a kind of lived sense of the way we do things around here, the way you work that out when you first join a department or an organization and you're you're in a new context is you kind of get a sense of what the written rules are and you've been told what your job is and all of that, but you're very alert to all the signs and signals and clues Mm. and cues in behavior that says, actually, they say that you're supposed to do X, but if you do X, I saw that person really get into trouble for doing X. So actually what you have to do is look like you're doing X, but actually be doing Y. Do something else. (laughs) And so so we learn when we're very good at adapting as human beings. And and again, it's one of these things that isn't just cognitive. Mm. Well, it isn't just rationally, consciously cognitive. You Mm. can argue it's all cognition and it's all cognitive. But we kind of work out what feels like the sensible way to behave around here and one of my colleagues um, who I work with a lot, we, we did a lot of work around organizational culture 25 years ago using a methodology that he had developed called the unwritten rules of the game. The, the, um, his book was the 1993 McGraw-Hill Business Book of the Year, which was called The Unwritten Rules of the Game. Uh, and in it, one of the things that was a little kind of mantra in the middle of it all is the way you understand what the culture is within any organization is you ask people who work there, once you've built some rapport and they're a bit open mm-hmm. with you, what would be the advice that you would give a close friend on how to survive and thrive in this part of the organisation? And they will tell you, oh, make sure you hit your quarterly numbers. Don't ever question your boss in public. Uh, yeah. Always look busy. Um, <laughs> the unwritten codes. <laughs> always have a, yeah, basically the unwritten rules of the game, you know. And, and so understanding so so where do they come from because you work out who are the people within this part of the organization that matter who who are the people that can either provide the goodies that I'm looking for from my work which isn't always money you know it can be career progression it might be interesting projects it, it might be recognition it might be you know whatever who are the people who can grant me that and who are the people who can deny me that mm. And what behavior do they want to see from me in order to either grant it to me or deny it to me? Mm. And once you've understood that, you understand a heck of a lot about the behavior within that organization. And so if you can, if you can understand who are the people that everybody's kind of referenced to, as we've already touched on, the default assumption is it's the most senior people in the biggest house. Yeah. Yeah. Usually some of them are, but very yeah. often there are other people. And so We've all got this experience of you're in a workplace and something happens and you hear something from on high and some big boss makes an announcement. Who's the person you go to to say, Karen, you know this thing about so-and-so that the Mm. boss has talked about? What's your take on what that's all about? So there are people that you get to know within the organization who are really quite influential because they're the ones who say, oh, yeah, it's just another one of those, you know, they've, they've just had some firm of consultants in, so this is all they're going to talk about for the next six months, but don't worry, it'll all blow over. Yeah. Just, just carry on with what you were doing before. Oh, all right, fine, okay, no problem. Mm. And mm. that's how people pick up what is the culture and the way we do things around here. So part of the work is to understand who are the people that are influential in mm. that way. 
And then the other part is back to this idea of 2D, 3D. It's like if those people are behaving in ways that that are based on them having a very fixed perspective on things that is not open to other perspectives, then what you will get is rigidity and it will stifle, smother and strangle any kind of emergence of new ideas and innovation Mm. and adaptiveness. But if they're the people who are actively embodying this attitude of, well, this is the way I see things, but I'm really curious about the way you see things because I've deeply understood, the penny has dropped, Mm. that... I will never see everything. There's always something that somebody else is seeing that is a value. And yeah, I may have to work a little bit to help them articulate it and to mm. help them to, to sort of articulate it in a way that's as free of bias as is possible. Yeah, but with a brain. That, yeah, but, but, it, but it's that, you see, if, if, if I engage with you, Susie, in a, mm. in, a, in, a prince, you know, a kind of attitude of, I'm really curious about what you think about this topic, yeah. then you pick up that I'm really curious about what you think about this topic. And mm. that that sort of respect for your opinion mm. becomes a very strong thread in our relationship. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you think I'm interacting with you, and the only reason I'm asking you about your opinion on something is so I can identify the flaw in your clearly inferior reasoning so I can <laughs> shoot you down in flames, then it looks like I'm doing the same thing. It looks like I'm curious about your perspective, but what's the motivation behind it? Is it yeah. genuinely to enrich the understanding of that mm. thing so that something can flourish out of that? Or is it simply because I want to indulge my ego in showing you that I'm the smartest guy in the room? That would be a short podcast. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Hi. Hi. That's, why I, that's why I said I'd be on my best behaviour today. <laughs> But I must admit, when I was reading, you know, some of your stuff on culture as a system of mindsets, and I thought, and I've been positively contaminated with your 2D, 3D discussion, because I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that that really resonates. I really, I really get that really resonates with me. And I was thinking, okay, does that resonate with me? Because that's my opinion. Mm. Or does that resonate with me? Because that's a lot of my lived experience. And because actually, I do believe that that's the only way forward in terms of creating sustainable adaptability, you know, adaptive yeah. change in organisations. And I came to the conclusion it was a bit of both. <laughs> but it, but it's quite a good case study for me for the 2D, 3D. Yeah. Um, it'd be great if you could show our listeners the object for the people who are watching yeah, um, and just sure. explain what the object looks like, because that springs to mind quite a lot when I'm doing not just agile culture but inclusion or leadership or coaching because it's just it's a mental model isn't it yeah and I think it's really interesting the way the way you explain it and for those watching they'll also be able to see it so can you just walk us through the 2d 3d thing of course of course so this originated I'll show you the precursor of it which is basically the Rubik's Cube right and I (laughs) I was writing a paper for so when I worked at Cambridge Consultants at that time they were owned by Arthur D Little the management consulting firm Mm -hmm. And the head of the technology and innovation management practice, a wonderful Belgian guy by the name of Jean-Philippe Deschamps, he, he was very interested in how do you create cultures of innovation because a lot of their clients were interested in this at the time. And learning organization was a big thing. You know, yeah. the ADL had just acquired Peter Senge's consulting firm. Yeah. And so there was a lot of this going around. So he said, could you write a paper for the House Journal on innovation? And so I wrote it and I basically said, look, this is what's happening. If somebody's looking at the same thing and seeing it's green, and somebody's looking at it and saying it's yellow. So for the listeners, I'm showing a Rubik's Cube. I just showed the green face. All the cubes are in alignment, actually. I gave it my son to put it together because I, I never can. 
I'm an engineer. I have to take them apart and stick them back again. But he can, he can do, he knows how to do it. Collective so, intelligence. So, yeah. So one face, he must have got it from his mum. So one face is green, one face is yellow, and another face is orange. So it's like people's talking about the same thing. And one of them says, oh, yeah, you know, that green thing. And the person who can see the orange face goes, what do you mean the green thing? And they suddenly think they must be an idiot because they're talking about this green thing when what they see mm. is So this was my article. And when I submitted it for the House Journal, uh, which is called PRISM, mm-hmm. which I pronounced very carefully because <laughs> consulting firm's House Journal should be called PRISM. <laughs> um, but um, it, the guy said, oh, it's a really great article. He said, the only problem is we're a two-colour print, so I can't do your cube with all these different colour faces. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do about that? And I thought, oh, I could cross-hatch them in a different way, but that just seems so naff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one morning I was sitting doing my early morning meditation and all of a sudden the shape popped into my head, which I call 2D, 3D, because for those of you who are, are viewing this, I'm holding this thing up and from this angle, it looks like a circle. But if I rotate it 90 degrees, it looks like a triangle. Mm-hmm. And if I rotate it 90 degrees the other way, it looks like a square. And so what happens is people come at things from a different angle and they see one aspect or the other. But if But if they mistake their particular 2D perspective for the whole, then let's say they're a circleist, so they see the <laughs> side of the world. You know, another person's a squarian, so they see the square face. And the squarian says, well, look, it's got straight sides, got four straight sides, and it's got corners, whereas the circleist is like, well, no, it isn't. It's just got one boundary, and it's there's no corners, and it's like, you know. <laughs> Sounds like uh, most conversations in meetings to me. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, of course, the triangolan kind of people also almost agree with the squarians. It's just when you get to count the number of sides, the triangolans are adamant that it's an odd number of sides, and the squarians are adamant that there's an even number of sides. And so this became the, the kind of the, the tool. And, and so the, the fact that it's a physical object and you can pick it up, and I've got some little wooden ones made here that I give to clients. And I would meet clients after 15 years or so, and they'd say, oh, I've still got your 2D, 3D shape on my desk. You wouldn't know the number of meetings I have where people are at cross purposes. And I just pick it up and go, look, Bob, you're seeing this. Carol's seeing <laughs> this. That. John's yeah. seeing this. You know, and he's showing one the circle, one the triangle, one the square. And they go, oh, yeah, okay, right. And just that metaphor is enough yeah. to get people out of the, well, you know, I, yeah, we can't both be right. And I know I am, so you must be wrong. And then yeah. we're basically, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Or we decide, I can't work with this lunatic who thinks it's a circle. You mm-hmm. clearly see it's a square. I mean, all my mates see it's a square because, of course, you hang out with your squarian friends. Absolutely. So the reason it's so mm. powerful is because people don't need to do a PhD in psychology and understand or philosophy and understand mm. words like epistemology, ontology, semiotics, teleology <laughs> to get the yeah. fact that we don't see the same thing. But actually... Yeah other people are seeing something that I'm missing and that mm. therefore their perspective adds value to mine and can enrich my understanding. And not only that, because we're curious about their perspectives, mm. it generates respect amongst people. It's like, well, what do you see, Susie? I mean, you know, you've been in this game a long time and mm. I know I've got my perspective on it, but, but what's your take on it? And you bring something, I go, ah, oh, that's the piece I was missing, you know, oh, God. Mm. And so, so now we want to work together because we can see that magic happens when yeah. we do this stuff together. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I think you also, so it's quite a humble stance, isn't it, to stand there and think, okay, 
there are perspectives that I don't, I won't see. And we may be able to create something bigger than us, if you like, mm. um, in terms of, you know, and they, we don't take the time to do that. But it's also giving permission, isn't it? Like you say, to say, OK, I'm right, but so are you. <laughs> so well, you're also on the binary right or wrong being sort of blown apart as a myth to come back to something we were discussing before, the myth of somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you said humility. And, and in a way, I would agree with that because there is a certain humility. But the humility is not in terms of my relationship with you or with anybody no, else. The no. humility is in not thinking I know everything. yes. Right. And yet so much of our sense of self-worth, particularly for clever people who've got a good education that's developed their left hemisphere very powerfully, (laughs) there is a temptation to get into, well, you know, my IQ is bigger than your IQ. Mm. And Mm. you get into the smartest person in the room. I was going to say the smartest guy in the room. It's not always a guy, of course. No. Because of gender parity in organisations, I'll agree with you on that. Yeah, that's right. Well, of course, you know, sometimes the women feel they have to do it even more in order to compensate for the fact that, you know, the guys are doing it. But, yeah, it it is this thing of a wonderful client I work with in Ireland. He was the chief operating officer of a financial services company. And we were having dinner. We were just getting to know each other. He'd seen my website and he said, look, I like your stuff more than all the other consultants we've had. And can can we meet up and talk about it? Because I want to do some culture change. So we met up and he said, he said, the thing I really don't get, Jeff, I won't do the accent because if he's listening, he'll, he, told me, he told me actually, <laughs> the next time you try and do an Irish accent, I'm going to cancel the contract. <laughs> but he said to me, I really don't understand. He was talking about his colleagues on the, the top team, on the global, le- on the executive leadership team. He said, I really do not understand why anybody would think they're smarter than everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you're pretty rare, Peter, because most people do think they're smarter than everybody else. You know, I mean, that's kind of, in, in a way, we've sort of created, that's I know we both know Antoinette Webel at um, mm-hmm. Gallo University, and yeah. she talks about suffering machines. You know, we've yeah. created organizations where yeah. people get to the top by showing that they're smarter than other people. Yeah. And so you create this kind of, it reinforces the mythology we were talking about earlier, but it does get into this kind of, almost a kind of brutal debate and discussion. I mean, these are really important words. You know, debate comes from debattir, which mm. is a French verb, which means to beat down. And discussion comes from the same root as percussion, which means to smash to pieces. So, you know, this is kind of very different to dialogue. Yeah, of course. By a logos, logos was like the sort of mm. hidden meaning in the universe. And the idea of dialogue was dialogos. It's between, between the interaction of multiple speakers yeah. that the the kind of hidden meaning unfolds mm. uh, kind of what david bohm was uh, yes. the physicist david bohm was talking about with mm. wholeness and the implicate and order there's something yeah. there that that unfolds when we engage with each other in this collaborative spirit of inquiry yeah. to discover what each of us brings that mm. is lacking got to listen though haven't you you've got to listen to what is being said and not being said in 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 that dialogue space yeah and that i think comes kind of automatically when it when the penny really drops yeah that the other person has is bringing some piece that you're not that you don't mm. have at the moment and, mm. and when that really drops you do become intensely curious and this this thing i mean chris argyris the harvard professor who did so much of the work around learning really the roots of learning organization one of his things it was one of his students i think that developed it but it was a tool that he talked about a lot was the balancing of advocacy and inquiry 
yeah. in order to develop meaning. And so we're all very good at advocating our point of view. You know, here's my 2D perspective. Here's my yeah. circle, right? You know, and everybody should Here's my square. My <laughs> but we're not quite so good mm-hmm. at the inquiry piece, which mm-hmm. is, so what are you seeing that I'm not? And that's the piece for me that is usually the bit that I have to, you know, when I've worked with organisations on innovation, the thing you normally have to work with more than anything is getting people to be much more curious and do much more inquiry or inquiry, as the Americans like to say, mm. than advocacy, because we're all very good at advocacy. Yeah, we're just good at telling people, aren't we, giving advice and, and everything else. But how do you get them there? Jeff, how do you get them to a place where they are curious about inquiry? Yeah, so what, what I've done with um, consulting work, and the reason I'm sort of saying that almost in the past tense is because with COVID, there's been mm. a bit of a shift in my work towards more coaching and development of people to learn some of the skills that I've been using over okay. 35 years. Whereas up till COVID, it was much more a case of me going in in a kind of catalyst role mm. of working with people. But when I've when I've done that, my typical default is, you have a sponsoring executive because, you know, somebody's got to pay the bill. Yeah. Uh, and the sponsoring executive is usually someone who's decided, you know what, I want some of this stuff. I think this is the kind of thing we need. So there's some part of the organisation that they have influence over which you get to play around in that particular mm. bit. But the other thing I'm always insistent on with them is find me one or two or maybe three people, depending on how big the, the thing is that we're trying to get our arms around, who have already got a natural kind of propensity to be curious about other people's perspectives and maybe want to learn some of these skills themselves. You know, they want to facilitate, they want to play in that role of a catalyst. Mm. And so what I will typically do is work with quite closely with those people who are playing that role. Mm. I have traditionally used the term key instigators because they're kind of instigating, bringing alive a 2D mindset within the organisation. And as opposed to the key influencers, who are the people who, because they are stuck <coughs> to a certain degree mm. in their 2D perspective, are holding back the emergence of an innovative, agile, adaptive mm. or future fit culture. So what we're trying to do is by working with the instigators, the ones who are taking on board this idea of 2D, 3D mindset and are passionate about bringing that alive in the organisation, to work with them to identify who do we think are the key influencers and how mm-hmm. might we create the conditions for them to potentially have the aha moment? Mm. That, oh, it's it's me seeing things in this rigid way that is actually not just holding back my perspective, but because mm. other people kind of hang on my every word, then if I change, then that will have a ripple effect through the organization. Mm. And so sometimes those people are very amenable to becoming more open-minded, you know, more, more interested and curious about other perspectives. They just maybe haven't thought about it before or they've been mm. too busy to think about it. Some people take a bit more convincing and some people are absolutely rigidly and implacably opposed to it because they quite like the way things are. You know, yeah, they, they've worked them. hard to climb up the greasy pole and get into a position of power and influence and they're, and they're damned if anybody's going to share that power with anybody else. Mm. Well, then you have to start deciding, well, okay, is, is that something that is going to inhibit the future of the organization and if it is then maybe it's best that they find a different role somewhere else in the organization or maybe in a different organization in order to allow this capability to emerge and so that's kind of been my operating mode up till Mm. now it's find some internal people who kind of they can be a bit organization you know od shape people or Mm. hr people sometimes they're 
they're kind of mid-level management people who've managed some teams. But the key thing is they've got this kind of, you know, when you show them 2D, 3D, they go, all oh, right, oh, yeah, I, I, get I, get, I get it. Or what? how do we do, what do we do with that? Mm. As opposed to people who go, oh, yeah, whatever. Because mm. they're the ones, because also what they do is they act as your internal guide. Mm to what's happening under the surface of the organisation. But, I mean, it's about enhancing that capacity, that human capacity, isn't it, to influence themselves, their tribes, but also the rest of the organisation. If I come back to one of your five fatal habits around, you know, hiring help that hinders, that is often hinged on, I'm the consultant, I've got the solution, I know it all, I'll do it all for you and step out again. But that is never going to create anything sustainable, is it, for organisations? Yeah, and I mean, that happens with independent and individual consultants, you know, yeah. individual very smart people who've got very good ideas and lots of experience. I mean, you know, it's a trap that I've fallen into. Yeah. You probably have. I mean, it's an easy trap have, to yeah. fall into. It's kind of like you want to be wanted and, yeah. you know, the client says, I'll help, and you end up becoming, it's a shifting the burden archetype in terms yes. of <laughs> Shifting the burden to the intervener, so so they kind of they 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 rely on you, and you feel important because you're relied upon. But it's even more of a problem with big consulting firms. Um, mm. Back to the earlier question of you know why would I hire <laughs> McKinsey? And I don't mean to pick on just McKinsey. I mean obviously they're, they're the brand leader, and they're the mm. ones clients mostly say. You know, it could be Boston Consulting or KPMG or Accenture. And the key thing there is their business model is very much driven by bringing in bright junior people, I mean, extremely bright, but inexperienced individuals mm. and putting large numbers of them into a client organisation to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And the only way they can do that safely with low risk and with minimum supervision, because if you put too much supervision in, you've got too many senior people spending their time mm-hmm. managing those junior people and therefore those senior people can't be out doing what they really are mm. there to do, which is sell more work to feed the machine. Yeah. So what you end up with is you end up with a standardised one-size-fits-all methodology, which is where you mentioned the five fatal habits. And the, yeah. you know, the first one is, you know, one, the one best way. And the second one is all or nothing. It's kind of yeah. like you've got to do soup to nuts. So that's the business model. And, of course, the reality is if you're going to change a culture and if culture is experienced by people as the way we do things around here, it's kind of synonymous with building the right muscles, yeah. Agility is about movement. So we're talking about, in a metaphorical sense, muscle building. Mm. And the people who build the muscles are the ones who do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And absolutely, if you bring in large numbers of junior consultants from a big consulting firm, they do the heavy lifting. So they build the muscles. And then you wonder why the people in the organization, there's no more agility and innovation and adaptiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the issue, you know, when a, when a, Typically, a senior executive, a vice president, COO kind of thing would bring me in and they'd say, I'll come and meet the CEO. And then you meet the CEO. And like six to seven times out of 10, I know exactly the question they're going to ask, which is, why would I hire you when I could hire McKinsey or whoever it is? And my answer to that is always the same. It's like, if what you needed was a lot of analysis to come up with a recommendation about, you know, bearing in mind all these factors, how the markets are moving, da, da, da. here's what you should do, here's what you should invest in. So it's a complex question, a mm. complicated question that you need to answer and make a decision on. You, you know, you'd be exactly sensible and right to bring in a firm like that because that's what they were set up to do. You know, McKinsey's yeah. case in 1926, you know, it's like so it's nearly 100 wow. years ago. So, <laughs> so they've got become really very skilled at doing that. But mm. when it comes to building new muscles inside your organisation, why would you ever think you could do that 
by bringing in lots of junior consultants from outside. It's a bit like realizing, you know what, I'm getting a bit older and I'm getting a bit out of shape. And as soon as you get over 50, you lose 60% mm. of your muscle mass a year. You've got to do some lifting. And you go, right, well, I think what I'll do is I'll hire somebody to go down to go the gym. Go and lift the weights. <laughs> go down to the gym for me and lift the weights. And then, and then wondering why you have, you know, wondering why you were no fitter or more flexible than you were before. So you don't have to think very hard to realize, oh, it won't work. But of course, if a client comes along to a consulting firm and says, can you help me? Mm. And the consulting firm isn't going to turn around and say no. If they can sell you an assignment with 20 of their junior consultants, they'll send you an assignment with 20 of their Mm. junior consultants. So are there in this field for you, are there quick wins, Jeff? Because, you know, people are also stuck on quick wins, doing things quickly, seeing results quickly, getting stuff tangibly quickly. It's one of the discussions I have with almost all my clients is, okay, that sounds really good. How long will it take and how many quick wins can I get while we're waiting? (laughs) Which which is a fair enough question. And my answer is normally the same, but I, you know, habits take time to form. And I think you change Mm. people's behavior one habit at a time. So I'm interested in your thoughts on the quick win question. Yeah, well, it, it is a bit of a conundrum because the the assignment that I always, the piece of work I always think of as being very, very, yeah, I was kind of already doing this kind of work. The client had already said, can you come and make our people more like your people? But it was this particular assignment. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was this particular assignment a few years later that really made me think, you know what, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of, rest of my career doing. And it was a, a biotech scale-up in, in Sweden, and they've got this technology and it was going gangbusters and they got some more investment, second or third stage investment from the venture capitalists. And they brought in a new CEO and the new CEO said, uh, up until now, we have been a technology driven company. Henceforth, we will be a market driven company. And basically the whole thing had just ground to a complete halt because they'd been driven by the technology people inventing this amazing Technology, surface plasmon resonance technology, it's called. Sounds very sexy. It's the kind of thing that you know, does. <laughs> yeah. And so, what they heard when the CEO said, We're going to be market driven, is marketing are now calling the shots. Wow. Now, there's a shortcut for you. <laughs> and, and so, they basically said, Oh, well, this is going to be entertaining. Let's see how those marketing numpties do. <laughs> and of course, the marketing people heard this message. And at long last, we have been recognized as being, you know, Validated. superior to yeah. these I mean, <laughs> engineering, techie people who come up with this thing that nobody knows how to use. So we will go out and conquer the universe. Uh, of course, but they didn't know what to do with the technology. So they were waiting for the CEO to say, these are the markets that we should go into. And the CEO didn't know what markets to go into because that depended on where the technology fit the market need. And so it was basically a complete mess. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it so happened that I shared an office at uh, Cambridge Consultants where I was working at the time with the guy who was the sales guy for Scandinavia for, for us. And he happened to know this guy and said, you know, would you have a word with him? So I went along and chatted with him and he liked, he liked me and he said, oh, we can, can you come in and have some conversations with people and see what you can find out? So I talked with the people in marketing and talked to people in, in um, R&D and a few others around the place. And again, it was one of these funny things where it was in my early morning meditation one morning, I was sitting there and all of a sudden this little picture crystallized in my mind that what was going on was that the R&D people were indeed, as I just said, you know, thinking, oh, well, marketing are going to tell us what to do but you know we all know how that's going to turn out don't we but you know let's just 
see them make complete fools of themselves. And the marketing people were like, well, we need help from the technology people, but they don't want to help us. So, you know, how are we going to get them to help? So it's kind of like, you know, this, this thing just flies in my head. And so the next morning I, I went in you know, the, the client premises and uh, I said to the vice president of um, marketing, a woman, I said to her, I just had this crazy idea um, earlier today. I'd just like to run it by you and, and see what you think. So I articulated this two mindsets thing. It's kind of a bit, you know, here was the circle and here was the triangle. 2D, 2D, 3D. 2D, 2D. <laughs> and as I talked with her, I could just feel the, the energy change in her. And she said, if you gave me a piece of paper, I could write down the names of all of our key people and put them in one of those two columns. So I said, well, why don't we pull in the uh, vice president of R&D and let's have a conversation about if that's what's going on, what's required to get out of this situation. And so very shortly, in a very short space of time, we'd worked out that the problem was not being market-driven or being technology-driven. The problem was driving the market. Because what they needed to do was to be able to go and demo the technology mm-hmm. in certain ways to certain clients in certain sectors to see how much they liked what they were seeing. And so what that meant was that R&D had to develop some technology demonstrator platforms that were tuned and tunable to specific market needs so that the market people could take a techie along with them, show it to the client, the client could ask the right questions, the technology person, the marketing person together working, you know, because they recognize none of us sees the whole picture. So you get the scene, right? And so um, we did this. And it was amazing because literally the culture changed overnight. Brilliant. I didn't think that was possible because I'd bought into all of the, oh, culture change is naturally a long-winded, drawn-out, painful process that often fails and blah, 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 blah. Well, yes, it is when you do it the way big consultancies try to do it because they don't develop any muscles in the people in the organisation. And what happened here was they just were off and running. And the CEO said to me, what did you do? And I said, I don't know, but if I could bottle it, <laughs> so, uh, I, I, could, I, could, I could probably destroy the Colombian cartels because the amount of human energy that got released just by yeah. these folks. Literally, I mean, if you're watching on watching this rather than, if you're listening to this rather than watching it, I'm doing my, my two fists bumping together face to face. It's like they were like that, punching, punching. And then this became like they, the fingers opened and they were interlocked. And they were off and running and they left me in the slipstream. It was kind of like, whoa, you know, it just felt like somehow between us, we'd found out what it was mm. stopping them from being able to liberate the natural human creative tech capacity and the natural desire to align and work together in a productive way. It was just there beneath the surface. Um, this misunderstanding and this misalignment and this misperception of the others as the folks who weren't pulling mm. their weight. Mm. That was the key. And once that had shifted, they were off and running. And I can remember leaving the client premises that day and thinking, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my career. Because the buzz of seeing people, and not, you know, I did some magic, but just seeing, just just having the great sort of honour and fortune of being a witness to this coming alive in front of me and going, my God, that was always there. They always had the potential to be like that. Yeah, they just weren't listening to it. They couldn't <clears throat> unlock it because they were busy blaming each other for the fact that they couldn't move forward. And, and again, it's a very natural bit of human psychology. It's like we're working really, really hard, but the, but the whole thing isn't working. Somebody else must be the problem. Who is it? Oh, it's those folks over there because yeah. obviously they're the obvious problem because we have difficulty with them. Or 
oh, it's those folks that we don't know over there because you can always project some sort of negative yeah. attribution. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're mad or bad or both yeah. because you never met them. Yeah, and it's not my it's, fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's the othering of, yeah. of, of some people. And then it's like, oh, it's them. And while you're sitting here going, oh, it's them and nothing can move forward until they change, you never notice the fact that when you're pointing your finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you for your contribution that you're unconscious that you're making because mm. you're so busy with your attention on them being the ones that need fixing. And yeah. so it's again back It's back to we can't both be right and no, no, I am, so you must be wrong. Yeah. But back to this trap of my perspective is right. Mm. And, if, and if two people, and this can be in a marriage or a relationship mm. and friends or whatever, as well as at work, if you're locked into that dynamic of the other person's the problem and they need to change, mm-hmm. and both of you are doing that, well, you know, that's why divorce lawyers drive around in Mercedes. Yeah, make so much money. Correct. <laughs> that's such a fab story, though. I'm going to leave our listeners with that. But before we finish the podcast, I would like to ask you your final call to action for people who are having light bulb moments while they're watching or listening to this discussion and thinking, <gasps> Okay, so what next? <laughs> How would you go about actually stepping into that space, which can feel quite overwhelming? Yeah, don't bet the farm, right? It's a, a phrase which I picked up in the States, don't bet the farm, right? So it's kind of like, okay. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what, what it means is that if you become curious about somebody else's perspective, mm. just a little bit, just be a little bit curious to see, is there any truth value in what they in what they're perceiving? You know, I don't have to give up my perspective because my perspective will always be there. But am I able to be open minded enough and put my biases and my judgments and my narrative, my tendency to narrative warfare and the want to want to be right? Can I put that to one side just long enough to really listen and hear and try and understand their perspective on something? Because if I do that and I see just the faintest glimmer of something of value in what they're saying, mm. that will change my awareness of their value within mm. the context that I'm operating in. And that is really the key. If you can do that, then it's a bit like you've developed a little bit of a muscle there. Yeah. And having yeah. developed it a little bit, exercise it a bit more, exercise it a bit more, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And you become so it's so surprising and so magical. I mean, Peter Drucker talked about this when, when he was towards the end of his, uh, I think about 96 when he passed away and been poking around in organisations for 60-odd years. Yeah, just, you know, the first sort of management scholar and all this. Mm. And he was asked, he was, on a, he was on a satellite, back in those days it was rare, but he was on a satellite communication conversation with David Cooper Ryder, the guy who developed appreciative inquiry. Mm. And Cooper Ryder asked him, you know, could you summarise what you've learned over all these 65 years in organisation? You know, like, what's the essence of organisational success? And Drucker said, oh, that's simple. We, we need to play to our strengths in such a way that our weaknesses become irrelevant. So this idea that if mm. you can just discover what the strengths are in the colleagues that you work with, mm. get better at discovering your strengths and then work together in ways where you're working with people who <clears> have <throat> complementary strengths in areas where you have weakness. And, mm. You know, generally HR doesn't do this. HR no. does a standard profile of you and says, well, you're really, really good at these things over here, but you're really bad at this thing over here, so we better give you some remedial training in that. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I hate doing it, but we've got to make you a well-rounded yeah. person. No, yeah. actually, what you want is spiky people. You want people who mm. are absolutely brilliant in some areas, mm. kind of okay in some, and then really crap in others. But they work with other people who are really good in the areas where they're crap. 
Mm. But then if you get this kind of mindset in there of what is it that you're seeing that I'm not, you then really get teams to flourish. And people love working in those environments because they can see that together we're able to achieve a lot more than the sum of the parts. Yeah, absolutely. And they're playing to their strengths. But what I love about that is it doesn't mean that weaknesses don't exist. And, yeah. But it's not like the performance management systems of this is what you're really bad at, we, we can help you. It's sort of like this is what you're really good at. And then it becomes a patchwork of complementary skills. Yeah, and recognizing what you're not good at and what doesn't like, you know, why do you, why would you want to go to work and do stuff that doesn't like your fire and float your boat? No. When you can work with somebody who the thing that you hate doing is is their greatest passion in yeah. life. It's brilliant. Just makes sense talking about sense making. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the trouble with all this stuff is we've gone too far down the intellectual mm. yeah. route and, and, you know, kind of my model's better. I was talking with somebody the other day, well, talking, we were having an exchange on LinkedIn, friendly exchange. Um, and I was pointing out that, you know, a lot of research is about my gold hammer is a lot better than your steel hammer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the research is being done by someone who's never even seen a nail, let alone tried to drive one in. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Jeff, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories, your experience, your insights. Where can people find out more about you and what you do and 2D, 3D, which I'm a well, little bit I'm obsessed sure, with? <laughs> I, I, we should have talked about this before, but presumably you put show notes at the bottom of your yes. uh, thing. Right? So, okay. So, Susie will put some show notes, but the, the places to go, I mean, I, I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn. I do quite a lot on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So, um, just get the spelling of my name right because there is a Jeff Marlowe, spelt J E double F, who's a comedian in the States. He's quite funny, <laughs> but it's not, uh, so not the same jokes. <laughs> If you want to find, yeah, well, we're both like jokes here. Um, <laughs> if you want to find me, it's G E O double F. Um, and that's the English G, which in French is J. So um, <laughs> that's the, I had a French girlfriend many years ago and I still remember some. Uh, so that's um, where you find me on LinkedIn. I have a Substack channel, which I try and publish on once a week, um, which are kind of, you know, thoughts and experiences of, of this, this domain. So that's Jeff Marlowe at Substack.com. Uh, and have a website, jeffmarlow.com. But as I say, Susie will do the magic and put the links in the bottom of the. I will screen. do. I'll put the links to all those things correctly spelled in the bottom of my show notes. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Right. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it brought you. If so, go over to iTunes and give us your feedback. And it's bye from me for now, and I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm-hmm.